Hey, Kate. Hi, Emily. <laughs> so, South by starts in two days. Three yeah. days? Two days. I don't it's know. two days. Today's Wednesday. It starts on Friday, March 10th. I'm braced for impact. Yes. I feel like the city is buzzing. Things are getting ready I think to happen. It's humming. Humming. Is that? It's not as excited yet. Okay. It's, 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 it's anticipatory. Oh, I can. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. Yeah. No, I like that. Oh, she got it. A hum into a buzz. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I know we're not supposed to talk about maybe things we would have wanted, but Yellow Jackets is doing a pop up and there's something about camping. And I really feel like it should have been us. And that's okay because the show premieres before the festival. Fingers crossed we still get it, you know, awards campaigning. But the fact that it's a camping activation, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm real jealous. And is there cannibalism something no, with it? No, it's barbecue, but it's it don't just it's not people. <laughs> but there's like a theme. Uh, maybe I don't know. There's an Who implied knows? theme. There's an implied theme. We don't know that they. Whatever. We're not going to talk about too much about Yellow Jackets. But yes, I will be going to that at some point. Do you have a favorite past South by activation? Oh, active. Oh, oh, oh. Very specific. Or maybe a screening, like the best thing you've seen there. Best thing. That's a huge question. So many. I mean, this is short-term memory, but last year seeing Cheryl Crow at Antone's in a very small space and realizing I am apparently a Cheryl Crow fan in a way that I was just like neutral before. Like she's the sound of my youth and growing Mm up, but watching her perform was unexpected. My favorite things at South by are things I don't expect will happen at all or I don't expect will be fun and then magically they become magic and that is exciting whenever you think it's going to be fun or you chase the party which is my number one mm-hmm. South by tip do not chase the party you hear something's happening across town don't even bother <laughs> don't go if there. it's don't already go there. started don't even go it is over do not go you want to know the best I'm trying to think of how to word this um the thing that South by cannot have in a way that we love many, many, many things about it okay. that we at ATX TV festival can have secrets <laughs> for 90% of the festival. We are two blocks away, so you don't have to rush across town for that's anything. Very, very true. That's very true. And that's uh, nice for us. One it is much hotter in mm-hmm. June. Mm-hmm. However, during South by, there's a really good chance it's going to be raining at least half the time. Oh, yeah. Always. Just you don't know which half. Yep. That's and the so, question mark. So you better make your decision about where you want to be because racing across downtown is just not not really fun. I mean, not, we can move off of this, right? Well, we can stay on it as long as you want. But I will warn anyone who does not live in the Austin area that basically since December, maybe November, can't really remember – we get about three days of freezing and three days of 80 and it's on a rotation. And I saw a really great El Arroyo sign that said Austin weather's pulling numbers like Powerball. And it's literally <laughs> like 69, 31, <laughs> 72. <laughs> like it, they are just yep. very random and you should be prepared for all weather. You should be prepared for rain and freezing and heat and then it should be, I made this mistake yesterday in the doctor's office. I was like, broke the number one Texas rule. Ooh. When it's hot outside, you didn't take bring a jacket. layers. You I didn't was take freezing. a jacket and you were super cold. I was freezing. I was like chattering freezing inside I mean, the doctor's office. I have a long sleeve shirt on right now, even though it's hot outside. Yeah. For that reason. I mean, 
Yes. I did run into a neighbor when we were out walking our dogs yesterday, and she asked, are we allowed to start buying plants yet? And I was like, oh, because they die outside? Well, yeah, because, I mean, because of the shift in weather Mm. of, like... Outdoor plants. Outdoor plants. I only have indoor plants. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Outdoor plants. And an agave plant. Buy an agave plant. They're very weather resistant. You know? I need something that's just basically immortal i basically do okay. nothing any to this any plant. sort of immortal plant that's my great one step did above fake the plants? plant i gave you yes of course i did you did it lasted over a year though okay i mean that's a long that's time a long time that's a really long yeah, time so but i really loved it so i think i just may go buy another one okay great I still have the, it was obviously at I still the great the outdoors place. on south congress oh, it's I love my that favorite place. Plant that's great place. Mm-hmm. um okay just because we are about to move into south by one thing that you're really excited about. Oh, I have a few things I'm really excited about. Okay, we'll I say one, one, but don't say the one that I'm going to say. Do you want to go first? Sure. I'm really excited about the premiere of Love and Death. Oh, I wasn't going to say that one, but okay, it, is on, it, it Well, it just wasn't the first thing that popped into my head, but I am also very excited about it. And I do like that you put your hand on your hip when you yes, said it. It is a, <laughs> it's it the one thing that I for sure know of all the things that happen and all the things you have to pick and choose between. It that is you the will go to. high priority on the list, filmed in Austin, directed by um, ATX awardee Leslie Linka-Gladder. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jesse Plemons, obviously. Big fans. Big fans. Uh, and... Uh, Texas Monthly. Did I already say that? You did. Okay. I don't think you did. Also Texas produced Monthly? by Texas Monthly yeah. based on a... David E. Kelly show or like, you know, wrote the pilot and did a oh, bunch yeah. of things. But and... based on a Texas Monthly yeah, article. True. Um, By Skip, right? No. Nope. It's not. It's it not. is not. It, it is, is not. not. As soon as Skip. I said that, I knew it you was... You were wrong. I knew it was wrong. But you should go read all you of should. Skip Hollinsworth <laughs> articles just for fun. You should do that. Um, you know what's weird about why I kind of also like it, which they may not like, they being the talent, mm-hmm. is it's either at the Paramount or the State, but it's on Saturday at like noon. <laughs> oh, I do like that. <laughs> I didn't I'm, even know that. I'm really, really excited about the fact that it's in the middle of the day. That's a great time. And I think it will do really well, so they should not worry, but it will also mean that there's a lot of other, it's not like. Like, there's a Jake Johnson movie on Saturday night at 6.30. Like, it is the marquee Saturday night Paramount movie. And I am going to try to go. Mm-hmm. But I am also prepared to go to the Driscoll and have a beverage. Like, yep, yep. How always, that goes. I'm always prepared to go to the Driscoll um, and have a beverage if anything goes awry. I will say there are actually, well, we can connect this to ATX as we go into our penultimate podcast episode from what, season what? 11. More on that later. Um, there are a number of ATX panelists and alumni at South by Liz Tiglar's in mm-hmm. town with Cheryl Strayed for her new Hulu show, Tiny Beautiful Things. Yep. I said it slowly. And if you're listening, you might know why I forget certain words. <laughs> um, Tiny Beautiful Things. Um, Damon Lindelof's in town for Mrs. Davis. I'm excited to see that, which too. I'm very excited to see. I feel like there are more people. I have a really insane word doc. <laughs> <laughs> that, that no one can interpret except for you. No one can really tell as I try to like map out like the mixture of programming activations and like human beings in town that I would like to have a cup of coffee or a beverage with. And like, how likely is it that we show up? Like you make all these plans yep. and then you're on the wrong side of town and it's a problem, but we're also excited for, I mean, it's now out there that we were acquired by PMC. PMC is a part owner of South by, but also a lot of the PMC brands are in town. Mm-hmm. Rolling Stones doing three or four nights at ACL live. Yep. Billboard has 
Billboard has a music at the amphitheater. Mm -hmm. Variety has a comedy showcase. There's a lot of content capture. Um, but a lot of people are going to be in town. Yeah. So I'm excited it's for all of those things. It's going to be a good time as always. Well, I'm going to take the ATX alumni bo like ball and transition to our panel today. Um, which as I mentioned is our penultimate next week in the middle of South by, I'm sure you will all have time to hear it. will be our final season 11 <laughs> podcast release. But today we are releasing class poverty and writing about the wealth gap presented by our friends at Hollywood Health and Society, who we have been partners with for five or six years, I believe, and will be back at the festival this year. We partner with them usually on more than one conversation and on conversations that touch on issues and representation. And so they're a wonderful resource to writers and creators um, who maybe don't know everything that they should about the topic or the group of people that they're writing about. And Hollywood Health and Society can help get you those resources, connect you with people who can help educate you. But also, they have initiatives every year that are issues that they think should maybe, that they're, they're not lobbying by any means, but they realize maybe aren't being talked about, but are issues in our world. Mm -hmm. The one I'm excited about and hope we have a conversation about this year is... Uh, climate change and the environment. I don't know why I knew that you were going to say that. Have but I, I just, told you? I don't think so. I did <laughs> okay. see it on a list, but I didn't know that that yeah. was the one you were going to be most excited about. That's the one I'm excited about. about, mainly because a couple of shows have done it really creatively. We won't talk about them now, but I do think it should be worked into some more storylines, and I think it has the opportunity to educate or lead people down Google wormholes to like have an opinion and learn more. Um, but today's is on class poverty and the wealth gap. Um, and it's something I think we could talk about every year, probably. Yeah. Because I think a lot of our issues and our representation come down to those issues. They're very broad, like far reaching. Yep. Yes. It includes a lot of people and a lot of stories. Yeah. So this year's panel had, uh, Linda Yvette Chavez, who is the co-creator, co-EP, and showrunner of Hentified. RIP, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's still available for people to watch on Netflix, mm -hmm. but we are not making more of those. Uh, Miranda Kwok, who I did meet and very much enjoyed, who is the writer and EP of The Cleaning Lady. Um, you should also, anyone listening, should go to our Instagram or wherever we keep our photos because she was wearing amazing an amazing outfit an amazing outfit she, she had style man yeah she talk about stylish people especially in the heat of texas she walked in i was like yep you're you are here to dominate yeah. and she's was awesome do you have any final thoughts i don't okay, but you, that was a great intro great well with that we will leave you with class poverty and writing about the wealth gap presented by hollywood health and society enjoy Great. So first, I'd like to start out with just giving some background information on the topic and presenting some research in the area to kind of set the scene. And then we'll get into a discussion with our <coughs> panelists. Um, so just to kind of give an overview of the, of the landscape, um, income inequality has exploded over the last 50 years. Um, since 1989, the wealth gap between America's richest and poorest families has more than doubled. Yet, the proportion of Americans who self-identify as working or lower class has remained unchanged. 
This may be due to stereotypes and narratives that paint the impoverished as cold, incompetent, lazy, entitled, and drug addicted. Therefore, these stereotypes discourage empathy for people living in poverty and hinder support for policies that could promote economic mobility. Research shows that mass media plays a powerful role in shaping attitudes, perceptions, and policy support behavior. Um, so what are the, some of the dominant narratives? The dominant narrative in pop culture is one of individualism. Success is achieved through hard work. These narratives obscure structural causes of economic inequality and translates into lower support for systemic policy solutions. Um, these narratives place the responsibility on the individual for their own success and increases stigma and victim blaming and decreases empathy towards both the fictional character and those living in poverty. So here at the uh, USC Annenberg, Annenberg Norman Lear Center, we have a research team called the Media Impact Project. And the MIP project has recently conducted some of our own research on the topic. What we found is um, the importance of illustrating the hidden hardships, particularly race, that affect a character's ability to succeed. Um, we found four types of financial challenges um, portrayed through television. Job, housing, health, and food. So characters facing job or housing challenges are more likely to be white, and characters facing health or food-related challenges are more likely to be black. This racial disparity is likely due to unconscious bias, but particularly concerning given that health-related challenges may be more likely to be framed in individualistic terms. Um, in sitcoms, um, existing research shows that the poor are often per perceived as unfriendly, incompetent, or lazy. And looking at 20 popular sitcoms and dividing them into two groups based on the main character's socioeconomic status, we found that higher socioeconomic status sitcoms are portrayed as both warmer with more hugging and more laughter and more competent with larger vocabularies and greater use of grammar. So what's next? What does this all mean? What does this mean for writers and content creators? Um, how can they challenge these stereotypes in their storylines? Um, knowing what we know about the power of storylines um, that they have in shaping public opinion and motivating structural change, the first issue that needs to be addressed is how we overcome these unconscious biases and stereotypes, especially in writers' rooms. How do we even start to take a crack at that? Linda, do you want to try to attempt <laughs> to answer hundreds, hundreds of years of systemic oppression? Right. Um, I think, you know, I, I always talk about it, it starts with putting people behind the camera who are from those communities. So I often talk about being working class and coming from a low-income family because I think it's vital and important to know the difference between someone who's telling those stories versus someone who comes from a background that has more wealth. Um, you're going to come into it with some ignorance. Like it's, it's inevitable that you're going to come in because you haven't experienced it fully. Um, of course, as creators, we, we are lucky to have the opportunity to tell all kinds of stories, and that's beautiful and important, but because we have historically stereotypically told certain stories, it's important to get those people who are in those communities behind the camera, and that's why for myself as a writer, creator, director, producer, all that, um, 
my challenge is working within a system that would like to reinforce those stereotypes at every level. Everyone you come across to get you know, approvals are coming in with unconscious bias. So as someone who knows a family that's working class and struggling with poverty, that hugs and has happy times and smiles and has joy, right. I'm gonna come into it to, with, with love. And I always talk about like, you know, a lot of times folks might come into a character uh, writing from a place of fear. And those of us who know our own communities, we're gonna come from it from a place of love. And that's why it's important to invest in creators behind the camera, because those same creators are gonna hire writers that are diverse, they're gonna hire department heads that are diverse. They're gonna do the work, hopefully, not everyone's the same, but hopefully they're gonna do the work to uplift and create narratives that are able to challenge all of that. Absolutely, thank you, thank you. Um, and as we know, societies are built on stories, right? Um, so in order for society to change, the stories it tells itself must also change. Um, so our challenge is to break that cycle, and it starts with the storytellers. So Miranda, do you want to address that issue? Yeah, I mean, when I um, set out to develop The Cleaning Lady, it was actually based on an Argentine format um, where it was, it was simply a cleaning lady who, who ends up uh, working for the mob. And what inspired me to create this show was actually to build in these layers of having her actually be an undocumented immigrant, um, having her be from a Southeast Asian background, which is something we've never seen on, on television before, in US television, and, and really just dive in to create the, you know, a, these multi-layered characters. And I think that's also a part of it, is showing you know, all of us, we're not one thing. And, and so when you, you know, when you look at people and you, 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 know, you recognize that you know, they, they have the same hopes and dreams and desires and passions as everyone else. Um, I think that's, that's, you know, creating those layers and showing that, yes, she may be an undocumented immigrant, but she's just the same as you and me. Um, and, and I think that's what's been, um, you know, really connecting with audiences as well. Um, you know, really breaking those stereotypes, defying the stereotypes. You know, yes, she's a cleaning lady, but she was a doctor in her country, you know, where a lot of people who are working in service jobs, who come from other places, their credentials don't translate, and so that, you know, they, you know, they, they are forced to work these other jobs, and you know, they've made sacrifices to to be here, uh, either for their families, um, you know, or for whatever reason that they're here, and so you know, you can't judge anybody for what they do. Um, it's 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 who you are. And so it's really, you know, throwing her into these environments and, and showing, you know, just how strong and resilient and smart she is in, in whatever environment she's thrust in and, and just really creating a full character that we can all connect with and fall in love with. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. And yes, on that note, you know, um, you know, you have a doctor who comes to the U.S. for medical treatment and unfortunately the system fails her. Uh, regardless of that, she does continue on to, you know, move forward and persevere. But can you talk about that systemic um, fallback a bit? Yeah, actually, I researched it quite a bit. Um, so, you know, especially when you have somebody from um, a diverse background, it's so much harder to find a genetic match uh, for a bone marrow transplant. And so, um, and, and you know, statistically, it's it's just it's just you know more challenging, especially if you're mixed, all those things. And so, not only is it extremely difficult to find that match, um, even when you do, 50% of the time, um, the people who sign up to be a donor, they just change their minds and they drop out. 
And so that is definitely a reality that I wanted to put on screen to show people, um, you know, if you've committed to do this, like, it's going to, you know, you don't think how it's going to affect somebody else. You think, oh, they'll just get someone else. It's like, no, you, you can actually save somebody's life and, and just how important that is. So, you know, fortunately, we were able to dramatize that, um, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a great way so that it really, you know, could reach people. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and so, Linda, um, Hentified follows the story of three Mexican-American cousins and their struggle to chase the American dream. Um, and while that same dream is so amazing, it also does threaten the things that they can hold most dear. Um, their neighborhood, their immigrant grandfather, and the family taco shop. So how do you balance those two things? How do I balance? The, the, the perseverance towards the American dream versus how that might challenge some of like their um, traditional uh, values. Yeah. I don't know that you do. <laughs> you try really hard to balance it. Um, it's a constant struggle, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of what Marvin, my co-creator, and I did with Hentified was we looked at our own lives and we poured it into the show. We said, even as we were creating the show, we were coming from, I was making no money, y'all, before <laughs> Like, I was broke. I was doing copywriting. It was like the waitressing of, like, of writing. And I really tried my best to get the show made with Marvin. And so we both were coming from these backgrounds and, and wanting to pursue our dream and wanting to like the American dream, right? Our dream of being filmmakers and creators and showrunners. Um, and at the same time, while I was doing all this, I had family things coming up, family traumas that I had to handle. As I'm not the oldest daughter, but I kind of act like it in the family. <laughs> and so like I, there were many moments where I'd be having to do something for work and I would have to drop everything to rush home to help, you know, with a lot of things. And, and there's a lot of layers I think to being from an immigrant family, from a working class family that do not get factored into the American dream, right? right? We're told, just hustle, just hustle, you'll get there. And then at the same time, our family's telling us, like, where were you? You weren't at the party. <laughs> You're like, I can't go to every town because I'm not. <laughs> 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 I'm not. Um, so, you know, that balance of, like, how much your, your family, which is essentially your tribe, who I adore, like, I, I think there's a real, there's a, there's a tension between American and Mexican culture, and I think with any immigrant family, it's your American culture and whatever culture you come from, because American culture is very individualistic. It's very much about the, the individual pursuing the dream and making the money and leaving the home and, you know, usually, not fuck your family, but like, I'll see you a couple times a year. Mexican culture is very much like family, togetherness, you work towards your dreams because your parents sacrifice everything for your dreams, so the pressure of it is so immense, and I think that balance it, it's not one that I think you can ever really achieve. Um, achieving it on screen, I mean, we show that on screen. Like, it, it's a difficult thing. They still had to make sacrifices in one thing or the, or the other. Sort of like a mom's, I'm not a mom, but from what I hear. Rumor has it. Or like, well, I can't have it all, right? I can't be a great mom, and I also can't be the, the career woman, necessarily, but I have to find some sort of messy balance between the two, and, and I think that's what the show really try, tries to depict with Anna, specifically, and and with Chris and, and even with Eric, all three of them are trying to be with their families, but also be this individual who can pursue that American dream and, and fulfill their dreams, because that's also important to us as individuals. So um, yeah, I don't know if there is any balance, but we try. <laughs> right, we try. right, right. It's an ongoing struggle, right? Yeah, yeah great. 
Um, great. And sometimes it is really hard to get these messages across when we're talking about institutions and, you know, differing values and differing systems. So it's also trying to find the balance of making it emotionally compelling, right? Because mm -hmm. we've learned that the emotions is what really reaches people and mm -hmm. um, transports them into your story. Yeah. So. Um, Really just, we're a small intimate group. I really just want to have a great, you know, um, intimate discussion. And if anyone has any questions from the audience, we can work those in as we, as we keep talking. Any questions so far? Yeah, um, you know, we're talking about sort of how important it is to get these different voices behind the camera, but just sort of by the nature of the beast of people coming from sort of lower income communities, there's a lot of barriers to entry you might not know you might not have the connections or the pipelines or know how to get your script into the right hands. So how do you go about finding these voices that have a lot of barriers to get to you? Big question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there, there are um, a lot of great programs at um, the studios and networks that they, they have diversity programs, and that is actually a great way in. Um, I, you know, because I, I come from an immigrant background, so, and I don't have a fancy screenwriting degree um, I won a screenplay competition. I won Slam Dance, um, and and that because I, you know, that's I, I came from an acting background, and I read scripts and I studied them, and then I just got really impassioned to tell a story, um, and it was a story about um, the Comfort Women, and basically world, during World War II, the Japanese military abducted over two hundred thousand women and forced them into sexual slavery to serve their troops. So it was a story that um, when, I, when I found out about it, you know, it was devastating. Um, and then I, I felt ignorant. I felt like, how does no one know about it? And I realized, well, no one knew because it was buried for 50 years. And so that, that just drove me um, to write. And um, it literally kept me up at night. My roommates actually joked that I needed to set an alarm clock of when to go to sleep. <laughs> um, and so that was something where, um, you know, because I, I, I was acting, I was trying to produce. And I, it felt like the only way that you're going to tell the kinds of stories that you want to tell is, it's, you know, for me, was to, to write it down. Um, you know, because no one's going to hustle as hard. No one's going to be pushing that story that, you, that drives you. And so, um, so that, you know, when I won the competition, I was like, oh, like this, this actually speaks to people. Um, and actually, it was, you know, I, I had no, you know, I was using deadlines as competitions for myself. And I just, you know, it was just trying to get it done. And when I won Slam Dance, or when I, so I, I was invited to the WGA for the 10 finalists, and I got, I got there. And, um, you know, one of the readers, uh, I said, oh, I'm Miranda Kwok. I wrote Song of Silence. And she said, oh, my God. And, she, and tears came to her eyes. And, and she's like, you know, I, I was bawling through your, reading your script. And I thought, wow, like, if nothing else, that was worth it. And, and that really honestly drove me, um, you know, again, as a storyteller and, and, and telling um, the cleaning lady as well. Like, I didn't, you know, when I set out to create this show, I didn't think, like, what is the audience looking for? <laughs> like, you know, who, what perspective? I, I, I just felt like, you know what, I want to tell a story about an undocumented immigrant and just, you know, dig into their culture and their background. And, and that was actually just so well received because of that. Um, but getting back to your question, I just realized I, I, I detoured. Um, that I, I also got into the CBS um, mentorship program as well. And, um, and there, you know, there's, there's some weird stigma sometimes. And I think it's also people who 
are the people who are trying to keep people marginalized, right? They're like, oh, you came from a diversity program. These diversity programs are extremely competitive. Like, you know, it's, it's so hard to get in. And, and so I say that because, you know, even if you don't get in the first time, like, keep trying. Like, writing is rewriting. Keep working at your craft. Keep honing your voice. And don't think about what other people, you know, what you, th what you, you think other people might want to hear, or like what stories might sell. Just, just sell what, you, what drives you, what you're impassioned to tell, and that's going to speak from the page. And so I think that that is what I would say to people who are, who are trying, starting out, is really just hone that voice, figure out you know, what message you want to tell, and, um, and hopefully that will connect with people. Thank you. Um, go ahead. So I think you both, you both talked about your experience, but we've also talked a little bit about the importance of other people in the room. Can you tell us a little bit about what you went through to make sure the writer's room, your crew, all the different people involved in the show, had the experiences you wanted and where, where you found those challenges? Yeah, I mean, you know, from Jump, I think it starts from having folks that you're working with that are supportive of what you're trying to do. A lot of times people end up in situations with producers who don't understand, like, they're, that the mission of being a person of color telling these stories is not just, you're not just a writer, like, you're actually doing activist work at the same time. You're having to carry another layer, another burden of, like, how do I lift up these people? And I think that finding the right producers who understand that like from jump, like you should be surrounded by people who are gonna support you and if at any point your gut says this person is gonna, is just not getting it, you're right and it's better for you to move on. And I know, I know that sounds crazy because you're like, but it's an opportunity. Trust me, as someone who had to break poverty mentality and felt like I have to take every opportunity, the more that I started to choose the things that were meant for me, the better my path got and the more direct and the more amazing people in my life who were there to actually uplift the stories I'm trying to tell. So start there, get the right producers behind you, the right collaborators. And then once you're in the room, like, I don't know, grow some, some, you know, so you, gotta be, you gotta be like ballsy in the room. And like that's really hard, someone who's like, you know, I was gonna say recovering introvert, but you don't recover from that. <laughs> um, intro extrovert, like, you know, I had to learn how to like speak up and like that's something that luckily like, you know, from very early on I got introduced a lot of activists in college and learned to be the only person in the room that's gonna speak up for the, the disenfranchised. Um, you build you build that thick skin. Um, and I think being able to, to speak up in the moments that feel dire is like really challenging, but there's a way to do it that, that you can do by by still respecting folks and still and choosing your battles. But every, every conversation from writer to department head to actors, there were conversations and the deep conversation about why someone may not have been approved because it's like, yes, you're not, you're not approved because there's unconscious bias happening right here and let me explain to you what it is. Or you know, there's a casting situation, like you're, you're pulling these people, let me explain to you why that's not the right person because what we're looking for is th these layers of who this person is and, and because you have historically not been challenged in that way, it's not your fault, it's unconscious, but I'm gonna do the work to help you get there because my purpose is to make sure the show is what I envision it to be and beyond that, the extra layer of like trying to break these boundaries that are often difficult for us to break because there's so many challenges. Like department, like department heads, for example, getting into unions are, is crazy expensive and like finding, you know, the industry, the network wants people who have tons of credits, for example, directors, tons of credits, like 20, 30 credits. 
They're like, but we want to hire diverse. Cool, someone with 30 credits. Okay, historically, we've not been allowed to direct. Like, <laughs> historically, those of us who are working class didn't have the money to get into unions. Historically, like, there's a lot going on here, so you have to kind of relinquish some of what historically has been your way of doing this to allow some diversity through the, through the door. And, and that's, those are the big conversations that you kind of like learn and you start to have. And you, you fight for and you cry a lot and you, <laughs> and you, you know, want to give it all up and move on with your life. But, um, but you, you do the work and I think that that's, it's hard, but you know, I, we've lived this life our whole lives. You know, the, the life of having to struggle, fight for our parents, fight for the people that we love. Like it's not any different than what I think I've always experienced. Yeah, we, we um, also made a real point to have writers that represented the voices on screen. Um, and so when we went out to agents and managers, even the initial search, um, we prioritize um, uh, both um, Latinx writers and um, uh, Asian writers, and specifically, like, if we could find Filipino specifically, if we could find Mexican specifically, because, you know, all Latinx experiences are not the same. Yeah. And, and so um, we managed to get a, a, a Mexican-American writer, um, Eddie Serrano, who's amazing, who um, grew up on a border town. And um, he said, you know, half of his family was in law and half of his family, you know, were criminals. And, and that's just a, a product of the environment. And it's like, you know, so he was like, yes, yes, we need him. Um, and, uh, you know, and then we got a Filipino uh, writer. Um, and, you know, we, we also have like a Korean American writer. So, um, and we have um, a half black writer. So we, we definitely, and I think our room is majority of, of women as well. So, um, so we, yeah, we made it a point, um, and Fox and Warner Brothers um, really, really stressed that they wanted this show to be as authentic as possible, which is fantastic, so that we were able to, to really push for these things and fight for people um, who had less experience. Um, and, and yeah, it, it is fighting for it. Sometimes, you, you know, not taking no for an answer. Like, we shot in Albuquerque, and we had, like, I think, seven black characters in the pilot, so we said we want a black hairstylist, and we were told, no, we don't have any. It's like, no, there are. <laughs> They're out there. Yes. Um, and so, and, and, and we got someone who was amazing. So, you know, the, all these battles, you, you do have to keep fighting for them, and, and, and directors as well. You know, we, we made a point to, to, um, to get people who are, are diverse as well and represent the culture. Because everyone adds, right? It's, it's yeah. not just ticking a box. It's not just on the surface. It's not the face of it. It's what they bring and their experiences yeah. and everything that adds and, and just adds those layers that really make, you know, make the show more rich. Yeah, 100%. Great. And you had the support of your network, which is huge yeah. as well. Yeah. I think we had a question here. Uh, yes. Um, First of all, hint to five, I swear you followed me in my family. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did. Did you see me? I did. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I want to at least get your idea. And again, huge question. Um, as far as colorism goes within the Latinx, Latinx community, what do you think is a way that we could personally start breaking down those walls as well? Because as amazing as one day at a time, as amazing as the George Lopez show was for our community, sans George Lopez, everyone was pretty much white passing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times that's the way we're able to get our stories on screen as if, okay, well, they're like, they're Diet Mexican. They're, you know, they're, um, <laughs> Diet they're Mexican. Diet Mexican, yeah. <laughs> I think my friends and I are um, and, and 
it's more of light skin instead of telling stories specifically like me, Mexican American, Boricua, Afro Latino, and such. Yeah. What do you? How would you start approaching that? Oh, you know, I've been trying to do that for a very long time, and I think that it's it's such a. I mean, the big conversation to start out with is just talking about the diversity of our community. I think that there's like a lot of just homogenizing us, which is really dangerous. You know, um, there's a difference between xenophobia and racism. There's a difference between nationality and like race. Um, and so I think that having that conversation, get, getting very real about our own privileges, you know, like about who we are, where we come from, and not to discount other people's oppressions, but to really, to see that, and then also see the privileges and see how can we use the, that to support those who are less, less privileged than us, right? So I think that for myself, for example, I'm my skin Latina, my, my brother, my sister, they're darker skin, like, I grew up very much being highly aware of how I was treated differently from the people in my family who were darker skinned and it was very disconcerting to me and so it's been something that's always been on my mind because I feel like it's it's serious, it's a serious thing and I think in the industry it's very serious, <laughs> like I think it's very, I don't even want to call it unconscious because I do think it's very conscious, like it's very much often like that's the, the stereotypical what's beautiful, right, someone who's light skin, who has European features. Um, it's the same thing that I was saying earlier, it's having those conversations and having people who understand what colorism is and the deep systemic way that it creeps, the way white supremacy creeps into everything in our lives, right? And, and I don't know that folks often understand that because we have this homogenization, homogenization that says if you're Mexican, then you're Mexican, you're oppressed versus like, are you indigenous Mexican and how is your experience different? Are you Afro-Latino or Afro-Mexican? How is your experience different? Are you working class versus upper class? Did you come from a family from money? Historically, are you from Mexico City, but your whole family's from Europe? Like, those layers are very diverse, and I think, you know, we kind of unconsciously understand it, but in the States, I think a lot of people don't actually get it. Like, yeah. I've had so many conversations, even with people of color, black folk, like, who are like, oh no, but they're Mexican, and I'm looking at a, a woman who has blue eyes, blonde hair, <laughs> like, lily white skin, and I'm like, Cool, but <laughs> they're Mexican nationally, but they are not a what like or they refer to them as a woman of color, and I'm just like, let's let's de let's let's unpack that because that's not really the reality. And I don't like sometimes it's conscious, sometimes I think people are just confused and they're not aware of the, the layers that go into it. So I think having that big conversation to me is the first step, and I don't know that we fully have had it. I think we've had conversations here and there. Um, as a community, but I think we have to have deeper and more nuanced conversations, especially around like casting and, and what, what are the things that we go out for, for example, as actors that maybe says indigenous background, Latino background, maybe I shouldn't audition for that. Or for myself, for example, when people bring me projects that I feel like I'm not the person who should be telling that, I will say no. And even when I wasn't like in the position I am now, because I know that there's only so many opportunities at this stage. Hopefully we create more and, and we have to make sure that the people who are telling those stories are the right ones because those are going to be the same people who are going to be advocating in the room for what they need to represent their communities. So, I mean, it's a big question, like you said. Like, I could talk about it for days, but here's a little, little snippet of it. Um, well, we are basically at time, but... Um, <laughs> We can sneak in one last question. I want you to know that Hendified has now become synonymous with being Latino in white spaces. 
And I want you to know that that is powerful. We talk about it, oh, we're in the rich white neighborhood, we're gonna end up by this place, right? So it, it's given us power. But I wanna ask you a question. I'm a first gen and I'm so tired of being put in that space of my story of struggle <laughs> and success. What, how is that for you guys? And do, are there other things you want to pursue other than telling a struggle? Like, do you want to be recognized as a, a writer and a person, not someone that writes about struggle? Is, is there anything on your roadmap path? Is that your goal? Or do you want to keep telling stories of the community? Yeah, that's the big <laughs> question, right? I right now my slate has a, a lot of different things and it was coming out of hentified feeling like I want to see us in our joy. I want to see us have fun. I'm doing a lot of genre development right now, so. You know, seeing people do like sci-fi things and crazy things and having fun and the, but at the end of the day, like who I am is who I am and where I come from is where I come from. So these ideas of struggle and identity, they're just a part of my life. And so they show up even in my work, even when I'm trying not to. Like Marvin and I will joke about that all the time. I was just trying to do a really fun thing and like suddenly I'm talking about like feminism and all these things. <laughs> you know, like, but it's like you, it just comes yeah. naturally because that's yeah. our experience in this world. It's difficult to step away from it. So for me, a lot of the work that I'm doing is about trying to lean towards the joy and to find that by, and within that somehow the nuance of who we are and how we experience the world and how do we do it in a way that's joyful. But I also have some projects that are that I do struggle with it being a struggle story that's really heavy. And I struggle with it because sometimes the stories that they're based on are really heavy. They are very tragic and there is no light being shined on it. And right now I'm in a place of the crossroads of like, is telling the story helping or is it harming? Um, but when something's left in the dark and we ignore it, I don't think that's also a good thing. And so I don't have the answer. I'm actually working through it myself right now. But what I am trying to do is have a balance right. of the things I'm doing. And then when I fuck up, I'll learn. I'll be like, ooh, I tried that. You know, like, <laughs> I'll work on it you know, as things continue. But, but for now, it's like I, I do, I want to see the happy, joyful, right. having a good time, the things that, like, you know, I experience in my life with my friends. So, yeah. Thank you. Miranda, any closing thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I also am passionate to tell stories about struggle, overcoming struggle, overcoming obstacles, defying the stereotypes. So, but at the same time, like any story is about that, whether it is from um, a cultural, you know, a specific cultural background. And so, I, I, I think I'm still at this point. I'm, I'm just more excited about telling stories from a cultural background, um, from a specific lens, because those stories haven't been told, and I think that's exciting. I, I think that the, you know, the, there's so much out there that being able to tell um, tell these stories from different perspectives is actually opening the world more. It's it's creating greater understanding and breaking down barriers, and and you know, the success of these shows is is proving that. Um, you know, even though we have, uh, you know, a Filipino-Cambodian family at the core of the show, um, Nielsen's statistics actually say that 90% of our audience is non-Asian. Mm -hmm. And so that, and, you know, 12 million people watch the pilot. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's out there and it's proving to the world that, you know, more than our people are watching our stories. And, and it is actually creating a greater understanding and compassion out there. And I think that, to me, is the ultimate goal, so. Yeah. yeah. Thank awesome. You. Thank you so much. Well, unfortunately, we're at time, but let's give them a round of applause. And thank you for using your voices and getting these messages out there. And continue to tune in, follow them on social, and just thank you so much thank for being here and thank sharing you. your thank stories. You. Thank you. Today's episode is brought to you by Equinox Hotels. Welcome 
to Equinox Hotel, Hudson Yards, the oasis of New York City. For those that want it all, Equinox Hotel has created the possibility for people to maximize their potential, a reimagined sleep experience built to optimize and energize. Their sleep chambers are built around the pillars of dark, quiet, and cool. Dark, all lights have been eliminated on outlets and electronics, and double curtains have been built into the windows to zero moonlight effect. Quiet. Walls have super high transmission class ratings with vestibules built between rooms and cool. Room temperature is set based on scientific studies conducted by sleep scientists from Columbia and Berkeley's. Equinox Hotel is the first brand to partner with doctors to optimize your sleep. Cocoa mat mattresses from Greece made with organic products such as dried coconut and real horsehair to absorb perspiration and cool your body in your sleep. Health is the new wealth. Be their guests and enjoy complimentary access to their 60,000 square foot Equinox Fitness Club, including indoor-outdoor pool and group fitness classes, or simply relax in their spa. Enjoy local and real cuisine from Electric Lemon, and during the summer months, retreat to the outdoor terrace, the perfect place to escape and connect while sipping on their classic and inspired cocktails while taking in views of the Hudson River and city. They look forward to welcoming you to their high-performance, modern, luxury lifestyle experience. Book your experience now on equinox-hotels.com. You have been listening to the TV Campfire Podcast, hosted by ATX TV co-founders Emily Gibson and Caitlin McFarland, and produced and edited by Sarah Light. This conversation was recorded live at ATX TV Festival Season 11 in Austin, Texas, between June 2nd and 5th, 2022. For more information on the festival and becoming an ATX TV member, follow us at ATX Festival or visit atxfestival.com.